Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Our country, maybe the entire world, has lately been in a state of constant judgment. We take sides and are often far apart. This is not the way of Jesus. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with the sermon, Build Hope, Not Hate. Aloha again, everyone. If you missed it in the beginning, my name is Steve Page, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at First Pres. And it is my joy to share the Word of God with you today. Today we continue in our four-part study from the Book of Acts, a part of our Fresh Wind Sermon Series and Small Group Study. Now this series marks the, the midpoint of our two-year Raise the Sail generosity journey. And we're spending four weeks reflecting on how God's generosity towards us impacts the way we can be generous toward others and serve God in His mission in the world. Now today we look at a scene where God was wildly generous with His grace, His love, and His compassion. And He gave this to one of the fiercest enemies of the early church. Now let's face it, we're in a week where the words like grace and love and compassion really feel in short supply. And again, I'm filming this just two days after the election, so there may be all kinds of things that arise between now and Sunday when you watch this that I may not reference in my sermon. But for all that may happen between today and Sunday, one thing is for certain. Whoever wins the election, you can be sure, you can be sure that there's going to be a host of emotions felt and words spoken and actions taken that will fuel hate instead of hope. And this is why it is a crucial time for the church to reflect on how we, how we as Christians can change that. As a pastor and, and as a pastor and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff recently wrote, hope counters hate better than hate counters hate. And hope is what the church at its best can offer. Not hope in a candidate, not hope in a political party, hope in Christ, someone in the world who also transcends the world. You know, as I have read and listened to many reporters and pundits and politicians and even preachers over these past few weeks, it seems as if hope is pinned to a candidate or a political party or to a set of policies rather than to our God. And when hope is sought in the wrong source, it often sets the stage for things like fear and hate and hopelessness. You know, one writer put it recently, the 2020 vote is taking place with the, in a country that is in a historically dark mood, low on hope, running on spiritual empty, convinced that the wrong outcome will gonna bring a disaster. And the result is pervasive mistrust, a sense that the world's most powerful nation can no longer come together in a common cause. And so this is why I want for us to reflect on a tremendous story of hope that occurred in a time when the issues of division and fear and rage threatened the early church. It's a story of how a man who was shot through at hate found hope through Jesus Christ. And it's a story of a Christian whose fears were transformed into a gracious act of faith. And that act of faith helped change the trajectory of the church forever. The Christian in our story is a man named Ananias. Now, the other man is a Jewish Pharisee named Saul. Now, Saul also has a Roman name, and it was Paul. Of course, I'm referring to Paul the Apostle. And as our story will show, many years before he was Paul the Apostle, 
He was Saul the slayer. Now let me give some context to our passage and to, and to the lives of these two remarkable men. In Acts chapter 7 and 8, a few years after the resurrection of Jesus, we see that a devoted Christian named Stephen became the first martyr of this brand new church. And he was stoned to death by a very zealous mob. No trial, no jury, just murder. And this is where we first see Saul, or Paul, in the scriptures. Let's pick up this story uh, here at this point in chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through 3. On that day, the day Stephen got killed, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. So we see from these verses that the death of Stephen kind of kick-started something awful, something dreadful inside of Saul. He's thinking, hey, one dead Christian felt good. Killing more would be better. And at this time, remember, Saul was a Jewish Pharisee, a deeply religious man whose devotion to God didn't leave a whole lot of room for grace. In fact, his religious devotion was so full of anger and hostility, he became very active, as it says, destroying the church of Christ. Now, you've got to know, the word destroy here, it means to ravage. It means to annihilate. It is a word that expresses a brutal and even sadistic cruelty. Moreover, Saul is so zealous about this that he literally goes house to house, dragging men and even women out of their homes to put them in prison, or maybe even worse, to put them to death. Now, I want us to think about that for a section. Can you picture this scene of women being dragged, being pulled from their homes, dragged off to prison? Think of their children. Think of their older parents screaming in fear and panic as this all took place because of Saul. In fact, Saul not only put innocent and godly people in prison, he beat them and he had some, as I said, put to death. You know, later on in the book of Acts, when Saul, who is now Paul the Apostle, is recounting to others what he, what he used to do before he became a Christian, he says these interesting things in Acts 22. He says this, I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and repeatedly beat those who believe in Jesus. The word beat here implies whipping someone. Folks, you have to be one hate-filled person to want to repeatedly whip people. And if that included women, man, that is just blind rage. Moreover, in that same chapter, Paul admits this. Many a time, many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them, Christians, punished. And I tried to force some of them to blaspheme. I was so furiously enraged at them, I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Again, the word enraged here is to be so furiously angry with someone as to be almost out of your mind. Look, I lay out all these details because when you look honestly at Saul, you see an enraged, brutal, and abusive person. If you think Antifa or some right-wing group is hostile, you haven't met Saul of Tarsus. Now, that being said, in Acts chapter 9, God steps in and he starts to change the whole picture. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, it says this. In Jerusalem, Saul was still threatening the followers of the Lord by saying he would kill them. So he went to the high priest and he asked him to write letters to the synagogues 
uh, to the, in the city of Damascus. Then, if Saul found any followers of Christ's way, men or women, he would arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. You know, when I read this, I wonder if I was a Christian in Damascus at that time, and I heard about how God caused Saul to be blind, I wonder if I would have been a little happy that this evil man was finally being punished, that justice was finally being served. Have you ever felt like that about someone who has treated you poorly? Kind of glad they got fired from their job, or maybe glad that their marriage is suffering, or maybe even glad they got sick. You know, sometimes we feel such horrible things about people because we, because we see people only through our hurt and anger, and we stop seeing people through the eyes and the heart of God. We stop seeing them that they are still, even as jerks, they're still sacred and loved and made in God's image, even if they don't act that way. And as a result, if we're honest, we don't want them loved or saved or redeemed. We just want them punished. Look, I, I don't want to sound naive. Let's be real. To say that Saul deeply hurt a lot of people is a gross understatement. I mean, this guy terrorized people's lives, innocent people's lives. I mean, again, after all, think of the families he ripped apart by dragging them out of the house. And this is why the story uh, of Paul gets a little difficult for me, because it's, as this progresses, God has more plans for Saul than just to punish him. You see, he sees Saul as a man who is more than his sin and violence. And I'm going to be honest, when it comes to violent people, I personally find it really hard to see beyond their actions. And at first, Ananias has the same struggle that I do. Let's read down verses 10 through 14 where it says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, where he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, now check this, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. He's trying to convince God of something. Now just for a moment, just pause here and reflect on Ananias. You know, in Acts 22, it says that Ananias was a well-respected and godly Jewish Christian. So I want you to know Ananias is genuinely a really, really great guy. But even such a godly man had to make some great changes in his heart in order to bring about God's purposes in this world. See, at this point, Ananias only knew of Saul in terms of one aspect of reality. Saul was the man who brought harm to Christian, who hunted them down to arrest them and whip them and beat them and even put some of them to death. In fact, 
Ananias is so convinced that Saul is not to be trusted that he's arguing with God himself about healing Saul. I mean, look at verse 13 and 14 again. Ananias seems to be saying, God, why would I pray to heal Saul? I don't think you understand how bad this guy is. He has to read off again to God, who knows everything, about how bad Saul is. I mean, why else is Ananias trying to resist God? Have you ever done that with God? You read something in his word or he guides you to go do something that contradicts your understanding of reality so you find all kinds of reasons not to obey. For example, when he says, forgive those who have cursed you. Nah. Bless those who hate you. Uh-uh. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Do you not watch cable news? Have you ever been to Jersey? Kidding aside, you know, these words are all directives from Jesus Christ in the Bible. But such words do not seem to make sense in our reality, in a reality so permeated with division and rage. So we argue with God. But God, it's not realistic to love our enemies. They're so horrible. But God, look how Marxist these people are. Or, but God, look how racist and homophobic these people are. You want me to love them? You want me to pray for them? They're ruining this country. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Am I ringing any bells here? Now look, to be fair, Ananias' hesitation was totally understandable. It's easy for us to look past just how difficult a moment this must have been for Ananias because we have the luxury of knowing the whole story and how it turns out. But you must realize Ananias doesn't yet know if Saul has truly repented. So, so think, at this point, Ananias only knows that, Paul, uh, that Saul was a raging hater of Christians. So for Ananias to go to Saul is tantamount to giving himself up to the police. In effect, it would be suicidal. Point is, Ananias cannot yet see that it is time to stand in hope instead of fear. His well-justified fears created a sense of hopelessness for any change in a guy like Saul. There couldn't be anything worthwhile in this man because he's nothing but a brute beast all the way through. And you know what? I get that because I've done the same. You know, back in the day, back when I was in high school, you basically had three groups of people at my school. You had the jocks, you had the geeks, and you had the people whom we jocks called dirtbags. Yes, that's exactly the moniker we gave them Terrible, I know, dirtbags. These were the guys that we thought were the bullies. They were the guys with the leather jackets who smoked like two packs of cigarettes a day and who seemed to always be in detention after school. I swear they were always there. Well, there was this one guy, I'll call him Bob, who is your typical dirtbag, or so I thought. Now, if you'd look at him, you would see a very large, very angry looking, tough guy. It's like he always had this scowl on his face, like he's just ticked off at people constantly. And he was a guy who often got in trouble at school. My point is, I saw him as nothing but a punk all the way through. Well, one day I'm cutting classes and I'm hiding out in the school auditorium. And while I'm hiding in a place where no one can find me, I suddenly hear someone playing classical music on the grand piano in the auditorium. Now, even for a rock and roller like me, I'm thinking, wow, that's something. That's incredibly beautiful. So, of course, I just had to go and see who in the world that was. Well, when I looked, I didn't see someone who looked like Yanni. I didn't even see someone who looked like John Legend. You guessed it. I saw Bob. 
And I literally was stunned. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I would not have imagined in a hundred years that this guy, that this guy could play the piano so beautifully. You see, my fear and anger toward him built a wall so high between us that I was prohibited from ever discovering the beauty and talent that was in him. Far from ever discovering that there was more to him than his anger and hostility. You see, when we let fear overshadow our faith, we start to live blindly. We can't see what God sees in a person. And as such, it becomes very difficult to value a person the way God does, especially those persons who are diametrically opposed to our values and viewpoints. And when that happens, we Christians, we Christians who are called to be peacemakers, can inadvertently feed the hate and not the hope in our culture. Yes, we must speak our differences, and we must challenge and debate one another about what we think is best socially and politically for this country. That's how great democracies are created. So don't hear me say that we Christians should just be nice and shut up and say nothing. But what I am saying, as Pastor Carrie Newhoff has said again, if you echo the culture, you get more of the culture, not more of the kingdom. I think that's worth saying again. If you echo the culture, you get more of the culture, not more of the kingdom. And if we Christians keep echoing the culture, how do we expect to see God's best arise through us, his people, into our culture? Yes, there's a hundred reasons to be upset about people. But to God, to God, people are always more than their politics. And that's why we need to ask ourselves, do I love my politics more than I love God's people? Or to put it another way, can I still love people even when I don't love their politics? Which leads me to the last part of our very dramatic story. So while Ananias is arguing with God about what kind of guy Saul is, God reveals something to Ananias uh, uh, about Saul that others cannot see. So we're going to read about this now in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 19, and it goes like this. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, the man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And so then he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now notice a, a couple of quick things here expressed verbally and physically by Ananias. It says he laid hands on Saul to bring God's healing and he calls Saul brother even before he knew for sure that Saul had actually changed. Look, we must realize something really important here. God could have done all this healing and all the calling of Saul all by himself. He didn't need Ananias to do any of this. Moreover, Ananias doesn't need to lay hands on Saul. He certainly doesn't need to call him brother. He could have prayed from across the room and just said, Hey, yo, Saul, be healed. Go out and serve God, or something to that effect. Okay? So something else is going on here. 
Maybe, maybe the bigger issue in this whole story is not only Saul's dramatic conversion, perhaps, and I can only speculate here, perhaps God is setting up for the church a tangible embodiment of what it takes to live out the love and the mission of Christ towards those we fear and towards those we, who are diametrically opposed to our beliefs. You know, maybe God is laying out for us a very earthy example of how we will see His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, laying out for us in living color how hope takes root in a hate-filled world. Make no mistake, this is a very sacred and monumental moment in the church. In fact, it helps change the course of the church for the next 2,000 years. Bottom line, Ananias put his faith in God's words more than he trusted his own fears about Saul. And in so doing, he built hope in a man where there once was only hate. And this is one of the reasons why Ananias is such a great person for we Christians to reflect on in our current cultural situation. He causes me to ask myself, does the passion of my politics, not their passion, my passion for politics stunt the love and the respect and the value God calls me to have towards those with differing political stances than mine? Am I even seeking God to help transform my deep disdain for people because of where they stand on the political spectrum or on certain social issues? Look, I want you to know I struggle with this frequently. Trust me. I can get very upset when I listen to people trying to dominate our culture with viewpoints which are, from my point of view, fully contrary to God. I confess sometimes at home after reading some book or article or watching some video about some popular politician or social figure who has voiced things that are diametrically opposed to God's ways or who's touting things that I think are ruinous to our democracy, I start verbally spouting off all kinds of things out loud in my home. Oh, I can't believe these people. What tripe? Their logic is so flawed. I don't even know where to begin to shred that viewpoint, etc., etc., ad nauseum. In other words, I start to look and sound a lot more like Saul than I do Ananias. You know, it's funny. I'll be, I'm going to confess something here, but my son, if he's home and he hears me like this, he'll come up to me and talk to me and lovingly confront me about my self-righteous rants. And he reminds me in so many words that this is not the way of Ananias. And I tell you that because I want you to know my becoming Ananias-like is not an easy journey for me. In fact, I'm still in process. And moreover, I want to be clear that I am not at all saying that we Christians should not be involved in politics or political discussions. As Pastor Tim Keller likes to point out, to not be political is to accept the status quo which is never God's agenda. But see, my issue is this. My issue is the kind of spirit with which we engage politics, the spirit with which we, we confront or critique ideas and people with whom we disagree. That's the thing. That's the thing that can move us out from God's heart and God's purposes to that of promoting fear instead of faith, hate instead of hope. Before I finish, let me quickly share three things which we can begin to incorporate so we personally can build more hope where there is so much hate. First of all, 
confess. Confess where your heart is really at. Confess where your heart is at in terms of people. Not in terms of political parties or policies, but in terms of people whom God loves. Confess to God or other trusted Christians any disdain or contempt you may have about particular politicians or people of this political stance or that. As you've heard me say before, we can't overcome what we overlook. So confession can be one of those first steps to our overcoming fear and cynicism. Second, cut down on or eliminate completely the streams that feed fear and cynicism in your heart. This is where we have to take a, a, a brain science and the, and the world of technology very seriously here. Our pop culture, social media, cable news thrives by pushing hate and fear. Tristan Harris, who has long worked in Silicon Valley and co-founded the Center for Humane Technology, has argued that major social media and tech companies have figured out, have figured out that outrage spreads faster than something that's not outrage. And when that reality is coupled with the fact that our brains are naturally hardwired to take more notice of things that seem to threaten us, like outrage, it leads to more clicks and more views for those who profit from hate instead of hope. My point here is simply this. As a Christian, be aware and be intentional about not being strung along in some ungodly journey into more fear and more cynicism in our world. Okay, that's second. Third, pause, pray, and ponder before you forward that angry email, tweet, or video that adds yet another brick in the wall of hate instead of hope. Be intentional about showing restraint. As Proverbs 17 says, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and a person of understanding is even-tempered. Yes, there are many anger-provoking things being said and done in our culture today. And what it needs is not more of your outrage, but more of your wisdom, your godly wisdom born from restraint and not knee-jerk opinionating. So before you fire off that email or pass on that tweet, ask yourself these two questions. Now, I'm serious. Will people be better off or worse off for having read or watched what I want to send? Second, is this likely to create more hope or create more hate in the person I'm sending this to? So again, confess, cut down or eliminate fuel for fear, and pause, pray, and ponder before sending. Now, there's so much more we can say about this story, but we're going to have to leave it there. Bottom line, folks, we are a church called to be Ananias in a culture that seems so filled with souls. And when we live in that standard, maybe, just maybe, we will see more Pauls arise in our world instead of Saul's. Because, because we Christians have intentionally forged hope and not hate in our world through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. What is God saying to you? Maybe some of you are feeling a little like Saul. You're just so full of anger. I want to pray for you that God would gently deliver you from such a spirit. Or maybe, maybe you've walked long in your life without God, and now your life is more hopeless than hope-filled. Well, I want to invite you to pray with me to give your life fully to Jesus today. So let's all close our eyes, take a deep breath, and just relax. Just breathe. 
Lord, first of all, we pray for our country that you would bring your peace to our land. Make us, your people, instruments of hope and wisdom and peace for the world that you still love. And as the old prayer says, Lord, where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is doubt, let us sow faith. And where there is despair, let us sow hope. Deliver us today from a spirit of anger and fear and form in, form in us the way of Ananias in a world full of souls. Now, for those of you who want to give your life fully to Jesus today, just follow me in this very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess the hopelessness of my life without you. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. And as best as I know how, I commit my life to you. Come and fill me with your spirit today. And it's in God's gracious and loving name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, for those of you who, for the first time, gave your life to Christ, can I encourage you to hit that yes button there in the chat window. At that point, uh, you'll be able to meet in a private chat area with one of the uh, folks on our prayer team or maybe one of the pastors on staff, and, and you can talk to them because we want to celebrate with you and pray with you to affirm you in your important decision. And we have more information that we can guide you towards which will help you in your new walk with Jesus. So just hit that button there in the chat. Now, before I give the blessing today, let me just say thanks again to all of you for joining us in worship. We're so glad that you worship with us today. And remember that we are on a generosity journey as a church. So let us finish well our commitments to our Raise the Sail initiative. Well, let us also be generous with God's grace and love to a divided world. And again, if you've given your life to Jesus today, I want to invite you to hit that yes button uh, on your screen in the chat area. And also remember that if you want to extend this discussion about what we have sung about and prayed about and meditated about and learned about today, then join us in a digital discussion group and one of our Fresh Wind small groups right after the service. Just hit that link in the chat area and you'll be taken right into that forum. I hope to see you there. And now receive this blessing. May God fill you with a sense of his hope in our troubled time. And may you become a person who builds hope where there is hate, faith where there is fear, and confidence where there is confusion. May you have the faith and courage to believe like Ananias that even the worst of us can be transformed into God's greatest instrument for his kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next time. Aloha. We often want to take on the responsibility of God and dole out judgment and punishment based on our criteria. But we are called to be instruments of God's grace, leaving the rest for the Lord to work out. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prez website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Normally, we meet Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at The Vine in Kaka'ako, 
But for now, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church's websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click on the online church box at our regular church service times. Sunday morning at 8, 9.30, and 11.11 for First Prez, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. for The Vine. Be sure to check your emails for links to sermons, church news and updates, and daily devotionals. If you have any questions or any needs, you can reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2020 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.